Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah. Not very often I take words from Nehemiah. Um, I actually nicked these from a sermon I preached many years ago on the same passage, so that's why we've got these words. This is what it says. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. In a book that's all about building walls and restoring what's broken down, it's just lovely, I think, to have those words of praise to God. And so we're going to sing a hymn of praise, which is on the sheet and will also appear behind me, for the beauty of the earth. And if you're able and would like to, please stand as we sing. Apologies to all the people who slept into sacrifice of praise. I could have done that myself as well. Uh, it's always difficult when somebody gives you a different version of a well-known hymn. For our opening prayer this morning, we're going to do something slightly different. I'm actually going to use um, a responsive prayer, which will appear on the screen. Um, and, and if you can't see the screen, um, I'll tell you what the response is, so that hopefully you'll be able to join in with it um, as we get to that point. So after each of the... Um, petitions, 
I will say Christ is coming to make all things new. And then once we shared in that responsive prayer together, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer in our beautiful diversity of languages and versions. So the response, in case you can't see the screen, is Christ is coming to make all things new. So with our eyes open, let us pray. Among the poor, among the proud, among the persecuted, among the privileged, Christ is coming to make all things new. In the private house, in the public place, in the wedding feast, in the judgment hall, Christ is coming to make all things new. With a gentle touch, with an angry word, with a clear conscience, with burning love, Christ is coming to make all things new. That the kingdom might come, that the world might believe, that the powerful might stumble, that the hidden might be seen. Christ is coming to make all things new. Within us, without us, behind us, before us, in this place, in every place, for this time, for all time, Christ is coming to make all things new. And trusting that this is so, we join together in the words that Jesus taught his followers, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
flowers so I can see everybody. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'll give you a few seconds to think about your answer. And then I'll tell you one of my answers, and then we'll see where we go in what we share and where that leads us. So it's a question that's actually on the service sheet. It's, the question is quite simple. Why do we come to church? Take a moment just to think of the first answer that comes into your head when that question is asked. Why do we come to church? So here's the answer that pops into my head. I come to church because it's my job. Oh, you nearly laughed. It nearly worked. Hurrah. We come to church for all sorts of reasons. So whatever reason popped into your head is valid. I wonder if anybody's brave enough to share the, th- the answer that they thought of. Tradition. You come for tradition. Thank you. We come to church because it's tradition. That's a great answer. Thank you, Anto. And it's a really honest answer. Yeah, we come because it's tradition. And Carl at the back. To worship God. You see, I can depend on my resident theologian to get me straight to... <laughs> The point. Thank you, Carl. Absolutely. We come to worship God. Any other reasons that we come to church or elaborations on those? So I come because it's my job. Anto comes partly because it's tradition. Carl comes primarily, see I'm interpreting as I go, to worship God. <laughs> what other reasons might we come to church? Be to be together. Thank you. Wendy? To meet with friends. To meet with friends. Okay, who comes because their mum or dad makes them? <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Lots of churches, you get loads of hands up. There's another one at the back, Carl. <laughs> to make community, that's a brilliant answer, thank you. Were you wanting to say something, Max? No, you're just having a scratch. You come to meet your grown-ups, that's an re- excellent reason. I come to meet my little people as well, Freya. To learn things, to learn things yeah. Any other ideas on why we come to church? To learn of him, yes, to learn about God, to learn about Jesus. Yeah, so all sorts of reasons, aren't there? And they're all true, aren't they? You don't come because it's your job, but I do. A lot of us will come because it's tradition, it's what we grew up doing, it's what we always do, we kind of know when it gets to Sunday. Even if we've had a rotten time over breakfast and we've had a row over something and we really don't feel like it, we've got to go to church because that's what we do. We come to meet with each other, with friends, to make community, to get to know each other. We come to worship God. We come to learn more about God and about Jesus. All sorts of good reasons to come to church. And those are fantastic answers. And they're important answers to, to, to keep pondering about. It's just lovely. I do love coming to church. I don't just come because it's my job. There's the odd Sunday morning when I think, wouldn't it be nice to have a day off? Well, it's my own fault because I didn't book one. But generally speaking, it's a great place to be and we can have some fun. So I hope we're going to have some fun with the song I've chosen this morning. You'll know the tune because it's in the hymn book. Um, The words are doggerel written by me, but it's kind of just to say thank you to God for our church. Um, So it's going to be thank you, God, for this new day, just to remind us of the tune. Thank you for our Sunday school, because we very much value our children and our young people who begin Sunday school's new term today, and are going to be doing some thinking about what that means and and where Sunday school's going. Thank you for our babies, the the newest arrival and those on the way and those a little bit older. 
And then, thank you for our church. I couldn't actually have enough verses to go on the ages, so the rest of us just have to come in the last verse. So hopefully we'll have some fun, and if the children want to move around and dance as we sing, that's absolutely great. So let's sing together. Thank you, God, for this new day. Reading, our first reading this morning is from Isaiah, <clears throat> chapter 58, starting partway through verse 9 to the end of the chapter. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honourable. 
if you honour it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then from the letter from James, the first chapter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. It is the same with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfilment of his own purpose, he gives us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious, and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world.
I know it's not any secret that one of the books in the Bible I especially treasure is the book of James. It's a relatively short text. It runs to around 2,500 words in English translation. And therefore, it's quite easy to read it front to back in a single sitting. For all that, it's not an easy book. And over the years, there have been times when I've railed against parts of it and I've wanted to argue with James. I'd have loved to have sat down and say, why did you say that? Because I'm not sure I agree with it. But the reason, above all, that I love it is it's an incredibly practical book. A book with all sorts of good advice and ideas for people who are trying to follow Jesus and to integrate what they say and do for one or two hours on a Sunday with what they do the other 166 or 167 hours of the week. Some of you probably have got better memories than I have, and you'll remember, because I checked it out this week, having been reminded by somebody, that four years ago, uh, when we were experimenting with the Roots material, I preached a short series on James. I'd completely forgotten about that, uh, but somebody said, oh, I'm sure you, I'm sure you did, so I, I went and had a look. So if you remember it, that's great, you can tell me what I'd said then. If you don't, that's also great, because then it'll be fresh and interesting. But I'm hoping that as we look at the book, um, we will find some things that are worth pondering a bit more. Back in the spring, one of the things I came across and I discovered when I checked back that I'd written about in the key at some point is an approach to reading the Bible, studying scripture, referred to as community Bible reading. It's not so very dissimilar from some of the... um, things that were done in the Latin American based communities at the end of the last century but it's kind of been formalised in the way that it is when the the Western Church or North Hemisphere Western Church gets hold of it and in this approach to reading the Bible you don't just have one person who sits down all week and studies a load of commentaries and finds something out and then shares it with you in this approach everybody is invited to read the passage an extended passage and then to discuss whatever has struck them as they've read it. And it's completely open. There's no right answer, there's no wrong answer. For those who are into ways of reading the Bible uh, formally, it's what you might call a reader-response approach, in which every voice is equal value. And the meaning in this approach, done in the way of the base communities, is discerned in community. It's in the conversation that we discover what God is saying And we as Baptists would like to claim that that's all kind of stuff that we're into, even if the reality, since people like Spurgeon and Clifford and certainly some of my predecessors here, has been the expert who did the work and told you on a Sunday what the Lord said. So as a step on the path to trying that out, which I hope we will do um, maybe later this year or early next year, I've given you all um, a copy of James' letter, with chapter and verse stripped out. So you have it as it would have originally have been sent out to the churches that received it. And I'm just going to invite you, I'm not going to insist, but I'm inviting you, if you can this week, just to try and read it front to back at some point and see what strikes you as you go along the way. I tested this out and I could read it reasonably slowly and closely in about 10 minutes. So perhaps if you could find 15 to 20 minutes at some point in the week just to sit down and note, <coughs> underline, jot down, whatever, or make a mental note, whatever works for you, see what strikes you about that letter. 
And don't panic because I'm not going to ask you to share it next week. I'm not going to test you. I just think it might be interesting to start thinking how that method of Bible reading might work for us. And if you've already done the quick exercise on this passage, you can see whether anything that I say over the next few weeks connects with that, disagrees with that, misses something, picks up something you didn't. And that's all part of how we learn together what God might have to say to us through this text. So what we're going to do today is going to have a little bit of a think around the background to the letter and then look at some of the key themes that emerge in the part that was read for us this morning, which we typically describe as chapter one. Now, it's not going to come as any surprise whatsoever that if you read three different New Testament scholars, you'll get at least four opinions on who wrote it and when they wrote it and who they wrote it for. Letter begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to 12 tribes in the dispersion or the diaspora, greetings. If you look through the New Testament closely, there are several men called James, and it's entirely possible that any of them or none of them wrote this letter. According to the commentaries on my shelf, and I have a few on James, and in fact this is the traditional Christian view, is that this letter was written by, or at least in the name of, James, the brother of Jesus. And so that gives it an early date. If it was Jesus' brother, who was younger than him, it's got to be written within the first century and fairly early. And somewhere around about 50 common era is what is typically postulated. Common era is AD for those who want it in old language. There are definitely some Hebraic influences in the style and content of what it's written, which doesn't surprise us because it's written to a Jewish order, 12 tribes in dispersion. But there are also some definite hints of a Greek or Hellenistic influence. The Greek that's used, unlike any that I might attempt, is not just competent, it's accomplished, which suggests that it could have been recorded by somebody else. It's unlikely that Jesus' little brother was brilliant at Greek. So it could be somebody else who's taken his words, collected them, reflected on them, and drawn them together, and used the language which was their language, which was more uh, affected by the Greek culture. Also, in those days, it wasn't at all unusual for somebody to write in the name of a teacher or wise person that they respected. Lots of ancient Greek writings and ancient Hebrew writings aren't written by the people whose name peers. It was one of their their pupils or one of their admirers that did it. So you might be interested in that, you might not be, but the traditional sense is this was written by Jesus' little brother, James, and it was written for a primarily Jewish audience. The form of the letter is considered by some scholars to be much more similar to Hebraic wisdom literature than it is to a letter If you were listening carefully as Grace read it, and I think you'll see this again if you take the time, are able to take the time to read it, there's a lot of short sayings that just seem to be repeated or something very similar occurs as you go through. It's a bit more like the book of Proverbs than perhaps one of Paul's letters. There's certainly not a nice tidy flow of ideas from the beginning to the end. And also, at the end, there isn't a blessing or a greeting, which you find on the other letters in in the New Testament. So is it a letter or is it a collection of sayings? 
and does it matter? One of the commentators I revisited this week compared the structure of the text to a bead necklace in which you can find order and pattern in what perhaps at first seems to be random stringing, but overall is beautiful. And I think actually it's not a bad image to to ponder a little bit as we approach this short text. And perhaps for those who have a more scientific brain and like a logical progression, and I kind of am one of those myself, it's helpful to think why this image works. Because if you were making a necklace of beads, you wouldn't say, right, I've got six green ones, seven red ones, three yellow ones. Great, that's fantastic. You wouldn't do that. You would mix them in order or randomly, and that would be beautiful. And that's the idea that this, the commentators suggest, that the author has sort of blended the ideas. So it's not disordered. It's not just a jumble of sayings. It's just not a scientific report or a structured account. So that might be helpful if you get a bit frustrated as you go, and it might not. But I guess irrespective of who wrote it and when they wrote it, and whether or not it's a letter or a collection of homilies or teachings, what we do have is something that's a rich resource both for us as individuals and as a community to reflect about how we live out the faith we profess. And if there's one clear recurrent thread through this whole text, it is the implicit and explicit inextricable interconnection of faith and deeds. What we do and what we say has to match with what we believe. How we live is the outward expression of the truth claims we make. We know that. That's not new. I'm not saying something that we didn't already know and haven't heard a thousand times but sometimes it's good to take a while just to step back and think, well, what does that mean? So today, very briefly, let's look at some of these coloured beads in the necklace, some of the themes that are identified in this text. One of the themes that you can find in this letter relates to perfection or completion and is first hinted at in relation to wisdom in the part that we heard this morning. If a person lacks wisdom, they should ask God, and it will be given. Although in this letter there is only one very brief reference to Jesus, there is this idea of becoming complete in faith and life. And I think it's not dissimilar to some of the things we explored recently, looking at the I am sayings in John's Gospel. And when I stopped to think about it, I thought, well, that's perhaps not so surprising, considering both of these texts apparently have quite a strong Greek or Hellenistic influence. Growing in wisdom and grace, living out what is believed more explicitly and more accurately. The idea of growing and flourishing, a bit like the vine image we looked at last week, can be detected here both at an individual and a corporate level. So that's one theme that we'll come back to. 
A second really strong theme in James is the relationship between rich and poor, between the haves and the have-nots, those who have opportunity and can and do exploit the earth's resources, and other people who don't, people who may find themselves exploited. This is woven in and out of the letter of James, and it occurred twice in the part that we heard this morning. That final sentence about the pure religion being to look after widows and orphans. That's quite challenging, I find. To look after the most vulnerable people in society. When I was reading what the commentators had to say about the likely audience of this letter, they seemed to agree that the majority of them would have been relatively poor. Peasants, if you like. People who had some possessions and some opportunity, but not a lot. And there would also have been people who were very poor and needed to be cared for within that community. There were almost undoubtedly some who were reasonably affluent, some merchants or people who had their own small businesses. We note that the fishermen would have probably come into that category. And there may have been a few who actually owned property who were quite rich. The tensions that can arise in a community of faith due to differences in wealth and hence a perception of status and power were very important to the writer. And we will think about that again another time. But whether we read these exhortations specifically about our life inside the church or more widely in our relationship to what's going on locally, nationally and internationally, the same thing comes out. We have to line up what we profess to believe and what we do, the way we behave. Faith and politics, at least with a small p, have to be related both inside the church and in the wider world. I've said many times over the years, I don't do party politics, and I don't. But I do do small p politics. I do issues. So wherever you sit on that spectrum from active party politics to issues, we have to hold that together with our faith. The idea of suffering and temptation features very strongly in James, and it came up again at least twice in the first chapter. Slightly weird, actually. I've seen a number of ministers quoting the first verse of James about um, consider it pure joy when you have suffering, which I've always struggled with over the last week. But living under a very real threat of persecution, the allure of the Greco-Roman world must have been really strong for James's readers. There must have been times when they wondered if it was all worth it, this enterprise of following Jesus. There must have been times when they began to question the kind of God who would allow things like this to go on. Does God send suffering, they might ask? Does God tempt people? And then there must have been the why questions. Why would a good God let this happen? And of course, the answers are no easier today than they were 2,000 years ago. But James 
in his own way, tries to relate his faith to his experience and to that of his readers. This isn't an academic treatise. It's somebody writing from their own experience of trying to follow a God who they believe shares their daily life. And so, as we go along, we'll take a look at what theologians sometimes call theodicy, questions about suffering and a God of love. And we'll do so in the light of what James has to say. And then a fourth theme talks about the shared worship life and in particular about prayer. In this really practical and grounded book of the Bible, it's perhaps useful to remind ourselves that it assumes a life based in a worshipping community and a commitment to pray. Where does prayer fit in our own lives? How much does worship shape our lives? This is me being the honest minister, and you don't get many that will do this, but there are times when I'm tired or when I'm busy that the first thing that goes is my personal devotional life. And I've sat and listened to ministers tell me that they get up at five o'clock and pray for an hour every day and felt desperately inadequate because actually I haven't prayed for a week. And the reality is I'm not going to be alone. What really strikes me is that for the writer, it's the corporate worship, the worship we do together that matters. That's kind of more a Catholic-y kind of view than a Baptist-y kind of view in my lived experience, if not in my theoretical experience. There is an idea in the priesthood of all believers and in the communion of saints that it's together that we pray. But when I can't pray, you can, hopefully. And when you can't, I can. And when none of us can, the bigger church can. And that's something worth holding on to, I think. So four themes to explore over the next little while. Perfection or growth in grace. Partiality and inequality, particularly in relation to rich and poor. Suffering and struggle and the life of prayer and worship. And all of these, through the lens that faith and deeds need to coexist and complement each other in our own lives and that of our church. When I was training for ministry, one of our tutors always said that when we were preparing to preach, we should approach a Bible text with a question in our mind So what's the good news or gospel to be found here? What is the good news in this first part of the letter of James? What encouragement can we take away with us into the week ahead? Maybe it's as simple as the reassurance that actually the challenges we face are no different from those that people have been facing for 2,000 years. As the Old Testament uh, teacher would say, there is nothing new under the sun. Perhaps it's to be, uh, to recognise that it's okay. In fact, it's good and it's healthy to ask questions about suffering, about injustice, 
about whatever it might be, personally or globally. Perhaps for some people that metaphor of the bead necklace is helpful, in which these different coloured beads that are strung together seemingly randomly or according to some design create something beautiful. And perhaps that might also be true in the muddle and struggle of our own lives. The more familiar image of the tapestry or the uh, Persian rug has the same kind of idea. That in all that muddle and struggle, when you look at it eventually, you discover a beautiful pattern. So hopefully some encouragement there. But also a reminder, possibly a challenge, that Sunday worship is never just a time for us to come and recharge our batteries. Never just about us being blessed by God. It may, it can, and it should probably include these. But it's also a threshold, a crossing place between heaven and earth, a place in which we bring our experience of the world and life to God through Jesus, if you can think back to the gate image a few weeks back, and then God sends us back out to be Christ for others. I hope over the next few weeks you will find something um, encouraging and useful and helpful in looking at this letter attributed to James. And I hope we will all of us find some new insights to help us as we seek to hold together our faith and our lives. And so we're going to use the words of Fred Pratt Green to be, as well as a hymn, also a prayer of rededication in how we balance our faith and our deeds. And can I suggest we remain seated as we sing this one, making it a, an act of prayer. When the Church of Jesus Christ shuts the outer door, lest the roar of traffic drown the voice of prayer, may our prayers, Lord, make us ten times more, a world, more aware that the world we banish is our Christian care.
just before we share together in our prayers for others, uh, Spence, do you want to come and join me? I hope you've been forewarned by your mother. So you're heading off on your travels off to university back in the University of the West Indies, and we'd just like to pray with you and for you as you go. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for Spence. We remember him as a young boy that arrived here a few years ago and adapted to our culture and our way of doing things. It's been a privilege to watch him grow in knowledge and understanding, to explore new ideas and to discover the way he now wishes to go with his studies. So we pray for him as he returns home and enters a new and exciting phase that you will continue to accompany him as he adjusts to another different culture, to new ways of learning and more new ideas, that you will keep him safe, that you will give him friends to share the journey, and that you will surround him with your love always. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. And so we bring our prayers for others. Let's pray together. God, who is perfect love and grace, we bring our prayers for others and for each other. In this week, when our television screens have been fil filled with images of athletes, and as medal tables have tallied the success of individuals and nation-states, we share a sense of delight in their achievements. <coughs> Yet our pleasure may, and perhaps should, also raise questions for us. About the endless quest for success, measured as outperforming others. about the tensions between patriotism and nationalism, about the inequity of opportunity within and between nation-states. We give thanks for all that has been good and life-affirming in the Rio Olympic Games. And we pray that once the flame is extinguished and the media have left town, the legacy for those who actually live there will be a positive one. As we hear accounts of how the transformation of UK sport has arisen from high levels of funding, mainly the profits of the National Lottery, questions arise about the apparent priority of sport over the arts and for that matter, over education or health. Surely we may find ourselves thinking there are more urgent and more important matters. And questions arise too about the allure and addictive nature of gambling that can so easily ensnare the poorest and most vulnerable in our society. 
We pray for those whose work is the impossibly demanding challenge of allocating funding. Seeking to balance that which is obviously sensible and practical with that which is equally essential but ephemeral and enriching. We pray also for those whose work seeks to address the consequences of addiction, poverty, injustice and lack of opportunity. Whilst the sports coverage dominates our headlines, the real-life struggles of refugees and asylum seekers continue. Violence against individuals and communities creates fear and uncertainty. The effects of climate change, environmental exploitation and natural disaster progress seemingly unobserved. As human sin and finitude reap a harvest of destruction, we find ourselves crying out, how long? As innocent people suffer the consequences, we add our own bewildered, why? We pray for all whose work seeks to respond to these complex situations. For scientists for politicians, for leaders of industry and commerce, that they will exercise compassion in the present and consider seriously the long-term implications of decisions made now. In a society where the dominant message seems to be about individual success, measured in exam grades, medals gained, celebrity status or material wealth, we recognise the inner needs of others and of each other. The yearning not just for acceptance but for love. Not just for existence, but for life. Not just for getting by, but for thriving and flourishing. And so in a few moments of silence and stillness, We allow words to cease and we rest in your embrace. God, in whom we live and move and have our being, accept our prayers and help us to play our part in living the answers. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
generous God who blesses us with so much. We have brought our gifts, some made in this free will open offering, others we have made by standing order or direct debit. And with them we offer you our time and our talents, asking that we manage to hold together what we say we believe with how we live, and that in all of it, your kingdom may be extended both here and throughout the world. Amen. Our closing hymn, All My Hope on God is Founded. If you're able, please stand as we sing. And so the blessing of God, life giver, pain bearer, love maker, be with us all and with everyone we know and love 
and everyone throughout the earth, now and always. Thank you.